This story today is about Jacob, who we met a few weeks ago when we heard about his dream of angels going up and down a ladder, stretching from earth to heaven. The backdrop to the reading today is that Jacob was in the middle of making a lot of decisions out of fear. He was being pursued by his brother and feared that his brother was looking for revenge for things he had done to his brother that were pretty bad. In the middle of all this, some strange and mysterious things happen, like last time in the middle of the night. Genesis 32. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God's face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. The peace of God be with us all. Since the uh, pandemic has struck, my wife Cindy has been doing a little more of the proofreading for me uh, from some of my columns and such. And uh, she is always quizzing me about my vocabulary and some of the words that I use. And she asked me sometimes, some time ago about a word she thought I'd misspelled. And the word was shtick. S-H-T-I-C-K. Shtick. Someone's shtick is their routine. It is their act. It's what they do. A musician, a public speaker, a, a realtor. They all have a shtick. It's how they succeed. And it's all bound up in that one word. And I don't fault my wife for not recognizing the word because it's not English. Uh, there's no real English equivalent to the word shtick. But my wife has Polish and German roots, and her father would certainly have recognized the origin of the word shtick because it is a common Yiddish word. And George Cooper, her dad, liked to throw around several Yiddish words. Yiddish is this combination of 
Hebrew developed in Eastern Europe, primarily in Germany in the early Middle Ages, as the result of the Jews being tormented and being persecuted, and they were moving around all the time, and they sort of developed their own language. And for years, it was spoken by women and children. The men were over here studying the actual, you know, God's language, the Hebrew, but then it became more and more popular. So now you have this common language that's used in greater use, and it has made its way into the English language. It's not proper Hebrew, not by a long shot. Uh, I have friends in Israel, and uh, you use a Yiddish word with them, and they don't even know it because they speak Hebrew or English. Uh, and it, so it's sort of like Southern English. I mean, you listen to Anna read that scripture with the beautiful Shakespearean King's English. And then you listen to me, and that's sort of a disappointment. Mine is much more dialectical southern English with all of its colloquialisms and phrases, but it's still English, and it's rooted in the very same beautiful language you hear Anna reading from, and that's sort of Yiddish. It's rooted in the Hebrew, but not exactly Hebrew. So I brought with me today a few of my favorite Yiddish words, and you're going to recognize some of them. You probably use some of these on a regular basis. You ready to go? Here we are. Number one, bagel. It's a chewy donut. And it is not an English word. It is a Yiddish word. Schlemiel. That is a clumsy or an inept person. Someone, as the proverb goes, who is always spilling their soup. That's a schlemiel. Then you have schlemazel. A born loser. An accident-prone person. The Yiddish proverb again says, When the schlemiel spills his soup, he probably spills it on the shamazel. And, of course, anyone my age, got a picture for you this morning, will recognize these two words, particularly if you put them together, shamil, shamazel, hasen, pfeffer, incorporated. Now, if you're younger than, than me, you have no idea what I'm just talking about. But if you ever saw Laverne and Shirley, that opening line, that little hopscotch they do, shamil, shamago, hasen, pfeffer, that is a Yiddish-American hopscotch song brought over into Milwaukee and to other places. The opening uh, words there are also used in that song, the word schmooze, idle chatter, attempting to persuade someone, schmooze. Then there is the word glitch. Have you ever used that one? A problem. Oy vey, woe is me. Cockamamie, ridiculous, schmaltzy which means sentimental, over the top. Spiel, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm giving you this long sales pitch, a spiel. Balabusta, a bossy woman. I'm just going to leave that one right there. Shrek, a monster. And then a really one I like, schlep. If you're schlepping something, you're carrying something really heavy a long distance typically. And then the word mench. This is Denise Simonson's favorite word, I think. She of Jewish roots knows a good bit of Yiddish. A mench is a person of integrity and honor. It is a person who is the combination of wisdom and compassion. Megillah, which is what I hope this doesn't turn into today, which is a long-winded story. And one more word, the word of the day. Chutzpah. And you got to roll it out like that. Chutzpah. Not chutzpah, chutzpah. It means to have nerve, extreme guts, audacity. We might use the word gall. 
In the Yiddish proverb, it goes like this. A person with chutzpah describes a young man who in the middle of the night gets up, goes to his parents' room, and for no reason whatsoever murders his parents. Days later, he stands before the judge, and the judge is about to throw the book at him, and the defendant says, you can't treat me as harshly as you would somebody else because I'm an orphan and don't have any parents. That is chutzpah. Nerve. Gall. And there is this beautiful chutzpah to Jewish spirituality in the Jewish faith. There is always this wrestling and this struggle and this gall, not just with each other as they debate and argue, but primarily with God. I mean, I love this story of the four rabbis. These four rabbis are always arguing about theological things, and it's always, it always ends up being three to one. There's this one rabbi who's always voted out. And one day he's so frustrated and he lifts his hands to heaven and he says, Oh God, would you please show us a sign that I, for once, am right and these three are wrong? Well, instantly this dark cloud comes over the group and the thunder rolls, then it dissipates. And the man, the rabbi says, See, I'm right. I told you I was right. And the other three rabbis, they get together and they say, no, no, that could, that could happen anywhere at any time on any day. So he prays again. God, could you give me a bigger sign? Well, this time the clouds roll in, there's thunder, and lightning strikes right at the feet of the other three rabbis. They get together, they talk about it a minute. They come back and say, no, that doesn't mean anything. That can be a natural event. The fourth rabbi, one more time, oh God, please. Show me an even bigger sign to prove to them that I am right. Well, finally, the thunder, the lightning, and God's voice from heaven speaks. He is right. The three rabbis get together. They huddle for a minute, and then they come back and they say, it doesn't matter, it's still three against two. Chutzpah. I love that story. I love that story. It's about gall. It's about audacity, even spiritually, to have this ongoing wrestling match, even with God. And that brings us to our text today. I have a lot of favorite stories in the Bible. But in the Old Testament, this might be my absolute favorite story. The Hebrew patriarch, Jacob, grandson of Father Abraham, in a wrestling match, literally, with God, or at least a physical manifestation of who he perceived to be God, this stranger who comes out of the night and engages him in mortal combat. And Jacob has chutzpah. He has audacity. He has the nerve not only to fight God, but in the end to beg God for a blessing. This boy doesn't know when to quit. In my mind, I can see him wrestling in the sweat and the blood, down in the mud. And Jacob is beaten, and he is exhausted, and he is wounded. And clutching to God's ankles, he says, bless me. Give me grace. And that is audacity. To go 12 rounds with the Almighty 
and to end up at the end when you got nothing left to still ask for a little more. Jacob's name literally means heel grabber. It's interesting. He was the second born of, t- of twin boys. His brother Esau is born first. And as Esau comes out of the womb, Jacob's hand comes out of the womb and it is clutching Esau's heel. And they appropriately named him Jacob, a very common name today. But it wasn't the most flattering name, heel grabber, one who trips others' ankles, trickster, we might say, shyster, that's a good Yiddish word, we might say, con man, snake oil salesman. This is a guy with a lot of nerve, and this is a guy who duped his doting mother to get what he wanted, deceived his dying father to change the will, cut his older brother, the firstborn, out of that will and took his inheritance, had to run for his life, went to his uncle's house on the other side of the country. When he got there, he swindled his uncle out of a fortune. And now here he is on his way back home for the first time in decades. He's about to cross the river into where he will meet Esau, his brother, for the first time in 20 years. And he doesn't know what kind of greeting that is going to be. And Jacob has spent his entire life tripping other people up to get what he wants. And through a combination of cunning and a combination of skill, working out on the gullibility and stupidity of others, Jacob had that unique gift to always swindle people out to get what he desired most. This is the guy your mama warned you about, girls. This is the guy that fathers would tell their sons, don't go into business with him. He always wins. Competitors are always left in his wake. And now... In this reading today, he still has the chutzpah running out of his ears. He still has brazenness, this this supreme arrogance to ask God for a blessing, and it is preposterous. He doesn't deserve it. What he deserves is to be broken, laying down in the ground on that mud in a foreign country in fear of his life as his brother is approaching with God just simply leaving him with the consequences of his actions. That's the moral story we would tell our children. This is what happens to you when you cheat other people. This is what happens to you when you don't live a noble life. This is what happens when you just use others to get what you want. But that's not how the story ends. As preposterous as Jacob's request is, even more preposterous is God's response. God blesses him. Even though he's crawling around on the ground in the mud, God blesses him. And God asks a question. What is your name? And it's like God is asking Jacob to make a confession. Let's hear it. What's your name? My name is Jacob. I'm the trickster. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the one who causes other people to fall down and to stumble. And here at the end of himself, God in response says, well, not anymore. You have wrestled with God and you have prevailed. Your name is now Israel. That's what Israel means. To wrestle with man and with God and to prevail. 
So this huckster, this snake oil salesman, becomes the namesake of the Jewish people. He is transformed by this experience because he had finally exhausted himself enough after going 12 rounds with God. He is so beaten down. He still has enough chutzpah to ask for grace. And God changes his name and God blesses him because it took decades for Jacob not to finally get what he wanted. It took decades for Jacob to finally come to the end of himself so that he could receive only what God could offer him. That's why God seems to enjoy a good fight. It's a dimension of faith, and it's a dimension of faith that we don't always talk about in the church, where faith sometimes is like a tug-of-war. God's here. I'm there. We are connected. We're tied together for sure. God pulls this way. I pull that way. God yanks over here. I want to go over there. The rope tightens. We get closer. I want to fight God. I throw a few punches. God can take it. He might throw a few back. It's this ongoing battle. Don't you think that describes faith a little bit more than just this blind obedience that we are expected uh, to, to, to go through? There's, this is a, a quote by Daryl Fashing. He says, the only authentic faith is one grounded in a spirituality of questioning. A faith prepared to call even God, or whatever is held sacred, into question. The test of authentic spirituality is the possibility of dissent against God's authority. Wow, that is bold. That's chutzpah just to say those things. But it is consistent with what you read in the Bible. If you go back uh, to, 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 to the Exodus, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And what's going down in the camp? They're building golden calves and, and, and creating new gods and new idols. And God gets so angry at the rebellion of the people, God says to Moses, I'm going to kill them all. <laughs> I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses says, you can't do that, God. Because God wouldn't do that. And Moses argues and prevails. Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom. I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth. And God and Abraham says, wait a minute, God, let's talk about this. And Abraham and God negotiate a deal. In the book of Job, Job has everything taken away from him. His life is destroyed. And at the end of it, he begins to level what faith he had left against the Creator Himself. And Job is saying, if you're God, then you need to act like God. And if there was really a God, God would show up and defend Himself because I haven't been treated right. God did show up. And it was not exactly what Job expected. But Job prevailed in invoking a response from God in this struggle. Go to the New Testament. You find the Apostle Paul negotiating with God all the time about his health, his thorn in the flesh. Jesus in the garden is begging and, and, and interceding and negotiating. Let this cup pass from me. Simon Peter was forever in the book of Acts telling God, nope, nope, I'm not going to do that. And God would come back and they would wrestle it out. And even in the prophets, you find God fighting with himself. 
when you look at it like this, on and on I could go, you realize that this idea that we should just never question God about the things that happen to us is bunk. It is not consistent with the testimony of Scripture. It is not consistent with human experience. And it certainly was not consistent with what Jacob had going on in his life. You see, God God let Jacob just wear himself out (laughs) with the struggle. And not just on this one night down by the river. Jacob had spent years trying to get what he thought he wanted. And up to this point, he had always been able to succeed to get from others what he was after. And this one night of combat is a summary tale. God lets him struggle and lash with all of his might, but in the end, with just a touch of his hand, Jacob's hip is dislocated. Jacob was done. He is exhausted. He is wounded. And now completely incapable of getting what he wanted from himself or from others. It was then and only then that he could receive what God had to give him. Oh, God bless me, he says. And it's like God says, son, this blessing is what you've been trying to steal your whole life. This is what you have been after. This is what you deceived your old man for. This is what you cheated your brother for. You've been looking for that blessing, that acceptance, that love, that place of belonging and identity for your entire life. You have fought yourself. You have fought everyone else. You have fought me to get it. But it has been yours all along. And now that you are so beaten up and so exhausted that you can't lift a finger, now you can accept it. Because it's been right here all along. God really didn't give anything to Jacob. He just took away his self-reliance. God just wore him down. And when he was at the end of himself, he was ready to receive what God offered. Frederick Buechner, treasure of a man, in his mid-90s now, wrote a book years ago entitled The Magnificent Defeat. And it contains a chapter by that same title. It was a sermon that Beekner gave 50 years ago now. He has the last word today. The whole battle was fated to end this way. This stranger letting Jacob exert all of his strength and almost win. So that when Jacob was defeated, he knew that he was truly defeated. So that he would know that not all the shrewdness, will, and brute force he could muster were enough. Jacob will not let go. Only now it is the grip of need like the grip of a drowning man. God is the enemy. Whom Jacob fought, of course. And whom in one way or another we all fight. God, the beloved enemy. Our enemy, because before giving us everything we need, he demands of us everything we don't. Before giving us life, he demands our lives, ourselves, our wills. Remember the last glimpse that we have of Jacob limping home against the dawn, bearing on his body the proud insignia of the defeat 
which is victory. The magnificent defeat of the human soul at the beloved hands of God.